five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. I'm Mark Boucher. Welcome to the first episode of Season 5 of Space Q's flagship podcast, The Space Economy. We've got a great season planned with guests from around the world who are contributing to the space economy, including interviewing new space companies. My first guest is co-founder and CEO Mina Mitri of Kepler Communications. The Toronto-based telecommunications company has a pretty big goal that of being the internet access provider in space from low Earth orbit to the moon and beyond. To make that happen, the company has two satellite constellations planned. The first for the Internet of Things market. They currently have 15 satellites in orbit for that planned constellation of 140 satellites. The other satellite constellation would be for the broadband market and would have 360 satellites. But that's not all. They have a new product called Ether, which Mina will discuss in detail during our interview. But subsequent to our interview, which was recorded on November 15th, a news item came out outlining plans by Kepler for a S-band low Earth orbit constellation of 114,852 satellites. The media reports had it slightly wrong. While Kepler, working with Germany's Federal Network Agency, had submitted an application to the International Telecommunication Union, it wasn't for a constellation, it was for the small ether communication hardware that could eventually be placed on a potential 114,852 customer satellites. Still, these numbers are mind-boggling when you think that just over 10 years ago, we only had a total of 1,000 active satellites in orbit. Okay. Listen in to my interview with Mina Mitri. Welcome, Mina, to the uh, season five of the Space Economy podcast. It's my pleasure to welcome you as my uh, first guest of the year. Thanks so much for having me on board. All right. So, you know, it's the first time I've interviewed you for the podcast. Uh, hard to believe I haven't done that in the last five years, but hey, uh, last five seasons, I should say, of the podcast. But uh, in so doing, and because you've grown from a startup and a very interesting background, uh, I thought for our listeners, uh, and we do have a bunch of um, startups and, 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 and uh, young entrepreneurs that do listen to the, uh, to the podcast, I thought I, I'd start off with a, a little bit of background. So um, if you could uh, give us an idea of um, how you came up with the idea of Kepler uh, and how you got started. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, as all good things, uh, it kind of came out of the work that we were doing within my university studies. So during my undergrad and my master's, and just for, for the benefit of the audience here, I'm formally educated at the University of Toronto as an engineer. And during my time at, at my undergrad and my master's and some amount of my PhD, worked on a not-for-profit called the University of Toronto Aerospace Team. So entirely extracurricular, but the focus was on, you know, can we build drones, rockets, and satellites for competitions all around the world? Uh, and uh, that was, you know, I don't want to, it's something we stumbled into, not something we were deliberate about, but something we sort of stumbled into with some pretty incredibly talented people. 
And then during the period of about three years, we had the benefit of uh, mixing laughing gas and aluminum powder to make our own rocket engines from scratch, uh, designing microbiology payloads that would fly up into space, and then building drones for autonomous competitions. And it was an incredibly rewarding and challenging time. But what it helped us to do is really understand what was the state of the affairs in the space sector. It's not something that you really appreciate when you're going all through school because your mind and your focus is on something else. But as you start to work in the industry, you, you get this profound recognition that space access as we know it has fundamentally been redefined. Gone are the days where it's uh, intergovernmental organizations and you know quasi-government uh, enterprises that are winning all the space business and going out to take advantage of space, which should be a shared resource. Today now, in fact, it's um, primed for commercial access because changes in regulation have happened, costs of launch have changed. And in fact, the know-how that's been so closely guarded in the past has now been distributed to quite a few different people. But we really didn't appreciate it until we spent enough time living, breathing, and working in the space sector. And it brought about this idea that, you know, here on Earth, we enjoy an incredible wealth of a digital economy that's all driven by the telecommunications infrastructure we put up. But in space, no similar thing exists. And we asked ourselves why, with all these changes happening in space and space becoming this resource that's abundantly available for all and for use by all, why is it that we don't have uh, communications infrastructure to allow it to flourish? And so we built the underlying proposition of Kepler uh, that's to bring internet access outside of Earth so that we can enable the space economy, all the while um, you know, driven by our strong recognition of what's happening in space and what we learned designing and building things inside of our uh, not-for-profit within the university. And so from there, you matured the idea uh, of Kepler. And give me the, what, what was the first, what was the year that you actually started the company? Yeah, so we started the business in around 2016, if memory serves correctly, 2015, 2016, somewhere in that boundary. Um, and, you know, we had this, this notion of where we wanted to be. Uh, and then since then, we've just been figuring out how to get there. Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things that actually helped you accelerate uh, the company was being involved with, was it Techstars in Seattle? Yeah, so we spent a fair bit of time in incubator and accelerator programs, not just in Seattle, uh, but in Toronto too. So we, we, we early, early days while we were still at the university, we went to the, the hatchery, which is built up by the University of Toronto. We spent some time with the Creative Destruction Lab, or CDL as they're known today, um, and a few different incubator and accelerator programs that each sort of offered their unique perspective. And this culminated in a decision for us to go live in Seattle for three months because that was the original breeding ground of Teledesic. Uh -huh. And there was a wealth of knowledge and people and capabilities that had all been built around, you know, what it takes to create this, you know, incredibly large scale satellite communications project. I don't know, Mark, maybe you want to, uh, you, you had an awe moment there on Teledesic. Well, the Teledesics, I mean, that's going back to the 90s, right? Yeah, you've got it. But they were some of the pioneers that yeah. kind of reformed regulations for non-geostationary satellite operations and built up the, the first uh, sort of world radio conference ideas of what else could be possible outside of geostationary satellite operations. Exactly. And unfortunately, at the time, um, they were a little ahead of their game. 
And so uh, Teledesic uh, wound up going under, but they did lay the groundwork. So uh, that's interesting um, that you went to Seattle in part because of that. Um, I'm curious, have you ever heard of the interplanetary internet protocol? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we've, we've certainly spent a whole lot of time taking a look at our predecessors, not just working on uh, space to ground communication, but space to space communication. Uh, and certainly uh, all sorts of other things outside of that where NASA spent time on delay tolerant networking, which has implications for space to space communications. Fun fact, I worked on the IPN for a little bit uh, back around 2000, something like that, the early 2000s with a group of people, including uh, Adrian Hook, who was leading it at uh, JPL at the time. Unfortunately, he's passed away since. And, uh, uh, oh, who am I forgetting? Anyway, there was uh, um, somebody else that was quite uh, prominent at the time. But anyway, that was a long time ago, 20 odd years ago. Um, all right, so- well, what's uh, changed, Mark, really is the difference in space access. So today we're seeing an incredible wealth of people that want to go take advantage of space and, and use it in the way that makes all sorts of communications work outside of Earth today super relevant. All right. So you, you did the accelerators. I'm assuming that obviously uh, helped you out considerably. What made you decide to go to move back from Seattle back to Toronto? Yeah, as we started to look at, there's quite a few different incentives to be a Canadian company, um, and I, I certainly won't rhyme all of them off, but I, there were a lot of things we were trying to evaluate as to what, where are we going to be located that gives us the highest likelihood of success as a business. And when we looked between the people we can gain access to through the university networks that we had, we looked at some of the incentive programs, whether that's SR and ED, or other government incentives that existed at the time. And we looked at the cost of operating the business, whether it comes tied to real estate or operations or things of that nature, it really centered on being in Canada and in Toronto would, would give us that highest likelihood of success. Um, now, since then, we've obviously evolved our operations. We've gone a little bit global where we've gone and put up operations in the UK and in the US, which was our most recent announcement. Uh, but uh, in early days of the business, certainly being located in Toronto was a huge boost. Now, okay, so you came back to Toronto, you got yourself, uh, started to get yourself established. Um, I'm curious, in those first few years from your original idea to uh, basically where you got going and, and started to launch that first satellite, um, did you pivot from where you thought you would be to where you are now? So, you know, part, uh, the way I like to think about this is the work of a startup is figuring out how you get to your destination. Uh, as long as your destination remains consistent and is where you want to end up, then that company is in fact still heading on the same path that it originally went on. But you know, for us, we always had this ideal in mind that we wanted to launch the internet and space. And the way to get there was always the problem we were solving for. And through the course of the years, we've made many, many different changes. I don't think I've, you know, I could tell you that with high reliability, I knew exactly how we would be getting to this destination, but we knew what would be the best decision for the company at a certain point in time. So we started out in early days and our approach was, hey, we wanted to de-risk our core payload or our core radio. And that was the first thing we worked on leading up to the launch of our first two satellites. 
from there, we kind of changed tact and we said, we want to productize it. We want to put the first uh, capability out there that can actually be used by some of our, our user bases. And that led to the subsequent launch of our next 15 satellites. And then from there, we kind of said, okay, now we're ready at a point where we can build and launch a satellite. We've got our core capabilities. We have our spectrum filings and we can, can go out and deliver the product that we initially set out to build. And that is the internet for outer space, which is the focus of all of our efforts today. All right, we're going to get a lot. We're going to get to a lot of those new things in, in just a little bit, but sort of like going incrementally here. So, right, in more recent events, in in 2018, you launched your first two demonstration satellites, Kip and Cave. Uh, then in 2020, you launched your last demo satellite, TARS, and the first two of your what you called your Gen One satellites. Uh, during that time, you launched two products, Everywhere uh, IoT and Global Data Service. Tell us a little about those initial services, use cases, and if you can, some examples of, of someone using it. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, always with the end in mind, that is to bring the internet to outer space, we kind of were building capabilities that would be relevant towards that end goal. So the first capability we built and we productized it with the, the moniker Global Data Service. That was a capability where we wanted to have a really, really high data rate backhaul downloading all of our data to earth. We always recognize that, you know, in this future version of the world where everybody's communicating outside of earth, there would always be a need to move large quantities of data from outer space back down to earth. And that led to the launch of our first product and our first capability set, which is to move large quantities of data from space to earth and back up to space. Um, that's where we acquired our KU band spectrum. We're the first in the world to launch and operate a satellite in low earth orbit in KU band for the work that we're doing. And uh, that today is in use with quite a few different users. There's people in maritime applications where they are taking Arctic cruises and collecting a whole lot of our operational data that they wanna be able to move through our satellites to an operation center that's very far away. Um, and they can't otherwise do that with the existing communications infrastructure because it's too costly or doesn't carry the right data rates for them to, to support that need. Uh, that's a great example use case. We also see it in use in oil and gas applications where people have a need to move yet again, large quantities of operational data from a remote location back to an operation site. Uh, and then we've seen new and emerging use cases across defense applications where they wanna transfer data securely point to point without the need to move data over internet and can use our satellite network to do so. Uh, and so, you know, again, the, the initial reasoning for that was starting with the end in mind, what do we need as a capability to allow us to be wildly successful when we launch our internet and space service? We centered in on this need to bring a large data rate backhaul for which we were able to productize it into the applications we see today. The next problem we sort of needed to solve uh, was how do we establish low data rate communications to a third party satellite asset. So there's always this chain where people need to be able to track, to command, and control their satellites in a modestly low data rate, but do so in a high degree of reliability. And that's ultimately what led us to build the next communications link for our Everywhere IoT product, which is that low data rate uh, high reliability link that'll eventually be repurposed towards our internet and space ambition. So it's kind of, all of this was stemming from our end in mind. What are the core pillars we needed to build our internet and space service outside of earth and incrementally deploying those things in the near term. 
Now, in January of 2020, you announced you would build your own satellites in-house. Up to this point, um, you know, with KIPP, CASE, and TARS, and I believe the two Gen 1 satellites, they were all uh, built by uh, the Space Flight Lab in, in Toronto. Um, and then uh, in 2020, you announced the decision that you were going to do it in-house with some initial help. Uh, with uh, the Space uh, Flight Lab to get yourselves uh, established. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to point this out now because, uh, you know, for people who listen in who uh, may not be that familiar with the business, um, you know, you guys set up in Toronto and you set up your offices like right downtown Toronto on Spadina uh, with your manufacturing facility in a small building. So I, I think that's, that's like really cool that these satellites are being built down there and then make their way into space and, and provide all this connectivity. So my question is though, um, because we're seeing, you know, different business models out there of people saying, well, you know, we're gonna outsource all our, you know, satellite development. We're just gonna focus on our key sensor or, uh, or we're gonna go in-house. So what made the decision for you to, to, to decide to build in-house? Yeah, for sure. And, and Mark, just a short correction there. The first three satellites were built by Clyde Space out in Glasgow. Oh, uh, that would be KIPP case and TARS. Um, the first of Gen 1 satellites in part was built at the SFL facility, but was then completed inside of our internal facility. Uh, and then since then, everything has been produced inside of our own facility uh, with all the Kepler team here. So all the launch of the subsequent satellites, et cetera, were all done inside uh, Kepler's, you know, building at Spadina and Queen. My apologies so, to, to, to Clyde. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And by the um, way, I did get a tour of their facility, their, well, one of their, their original facility in Scotland. <laughs> Which is pretty incredible to see, you know, the, yeah. the space ecosystem has expanded so large and you go by the Clyde River and see this kind of unassuming town, but with a high tech satellite manufacturing hub there is a pretty cool thing. Yeah. So, you know, for us, we, we surveyed the global landscape. So we spent a bunch of time going door to door with a whole bunch of people and evaluating all sorts of different models, capabilities of how can we get this done? Uh, so our, you know, end in mind, what we want to do is put up internet access outside of Earth. And how is it that we go out and accomplish that? So, our, you know, we're not a satellite manufacturing business. And that's not our intention. Um, so what we wanted to do is go in and see what the world had to offer. And what we quickly realized and built a, a thesis around that uh, led to the decision you, you saw in the news is um, a lot of people today that are producing spacecraft do so largely in support of uh, government missions. So most of these space businesses that have been built in the past are delivering uh, one satellite for a specific government mission. And as a result, there's no need for them to invest in the ability for it to scale. They're not investing in the supporting infrastructure. They're not making it into a platform that is a commercial off the shelf, you buy it type of product. It is for all intents and purposes, a bit of a bespoke product for the user needs that they're going out to serve. And because of that, their whole operating practice, the way the businesses are set up is in support of how do I make the best single product for a single customer? It's not how do I make a scalable product that can go out and be serviceable to a whole range of different users? And how do I make sure it's industrialized in its production? Because 
you know what, an extra 10 hours of technician time is not that expensive in comparison to the amount of time you got to invest to make it so that the technician spends an hour on the same task. It's an incredible investment to uh, make that modification. So we saw these businesses that were alive and well and doing really great work and had a lot of heritage products, but a lot of them um, weren't making the investments to really scale up so that they can support the type of customer that we are. Uh, they were still very much winning a lot of their business from the traditional government sector. And the cost for them to scale up, you know, could really only be justified if we as a customer could step in and, and really float that entire bill uh, because we're not their, their primary line of business. So when we looked at that and we evaluated what was all available in the world, we really came to the conclusion that, you know, one way or another, we're going to foot the bill, whether we pay it with a, a supplier or we pay it ourselves. Um, and this capability would be a unique advantage because it's not quite available anywhere else in the world. So we said to ourselves, look, if we can get some great partners along the way. Um, so we, we, we had a transaction with Sinclair Interplanetary before they were bought out by Rocket Labs to pick up some underlying intellectual property that would help us be more successful. And if we can find similar partners along the way that can help us to accomplish our needs, we'd absolutely take advantage of the heritage we can find in space. But for all intents and purposes, for us to really scale this operation, we had to do it ourselves just because of a lack of capability and um, the cost for us to invest uh, with a partner to make it operational. Now, which brings me to a couple of follow-on questions. Um, so you've got this facility. Um, I'm curious if you can tell us um, how many satellites are you manufacturing per month now and how many satellites can you manufacture in the future? So what's, what are you doing now and what's like the maximum you think you can do on a, on a monthly basis? Yeah, so good questions. And the way we set up our facilities in response to the need that we have for not only deploying our initial constellation, but continuously supplying our constellation as we look to refresh it. And we wanna make sure that we're able to do that at uh, incredible economics that are unmatched into the industry so that our business case all works out. And I think our team's been incredibly successful in accomplishing that goal. So today our team has the capacity to output upwards of 10 satellites a month. Um, and so that, that we've seen is just something we're super proud of as a Canadian board business to accomplish. I don't think anybody else has been able to do that in Canada or that may not have tried, but uh, nobody else is certainly doing that that I'm aware of. Am I right? Yeah, exactly, Mark. So the, it's really like, what's the purpose behind doing the work? And for us, we've got a real reason. And historically, that's not existed for a lot of these uh, suppliers here in the world. So um, I'm curious. Um, this is a timely question for uh, the times we're in with pandemic. Um, are you have any supply chain issues or were you able to secure enough product to keep your lead time the way you want it to be? Yeah, so our team, we've got a supply chain team and people all supporting that initiative. And certainly as soon as the pandemic hit, we were ordering quantities of supplies that we thought we might need, weren't certain we'd use them or not. So we do keep a steady state inventory that allows us to avoid some of the supply chain issues that we're encountering. It's not to say that we're impervious to them and we see announcements all, all the time where delays in timeline are all a result of supply chain. Um, but for the most part, physical goods and components aren't the exact barrier that we're facing, but we're facing barriers where shipping 
stuff in and out of countries has taken us more months than we've seen in the past. Uh, we've seen barriers where production lead times because of variable schedules um, inside of our product inside of our uh, supplier facilities have impacted them. So you know people had stay at home orders and nobody's going to be producing anybody anything from home. And, and that's impacted some of the, the production lead times. But for the most part, physical goods uh, have been relatively secured and sourced ahead of time. So we keep that inventory. Now, are you still, I mean, you have to produce satellites. So um, is your team back up to full speed uh, at the office? Yeah, so, you know, we are an essential business because the type of communication service we supply out to the world and the needs of our various users. So we have been deemed an essential business in Canada. And for the lion's share of the pandemic, we had a skeleton crew always in office to make sure our customers are unaffected and our launch timelines are unaffected. Uh, and then beyond that, you know, we, we are largely a remote work, remote first workforce. So we really do believe in the the power of allowing people the flexibility to go work outside of the, the four walls of the building and whatever helps them to do their best work. So we've been pretty successful in having our team work remotely. And for those that need it or benefit from it have now been able to come back into the office. So we've reopened the office, had them safely coming back in. We want to make sure people that are in our office are fully vaccinated and can uh, sort of attest to the need to be in the office. But for the most part, we are encouraging people to work remotely if they can and uh, making sure that they're successful in this new remote environment. And your production line is full speed. You got it. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, since you mentioned partners and you mentioned Sinclair a while ago and, and, and SFL is Baselight Lab has been a partner. Um, are there any partners that are Canadian partners that uh, are worth a shout out um, that you've been working with that uh, maybe haven't been as recognized? Ooh, Ooh, you're trying to catch me in a bit of a trap here. Uh <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, hey, I'm... you don't have to answer. <laughs> All that's to say, I think there's a tremendous uh, number of partners that have helped us to get to the state where we are right now. And, uh, you know, whenever you're giving shout outs, it's tough to, to make sure we're capturing everybody, but we've got everyone from PCB manufacturers here in Canada to uh, component suppliers to all sorts of different vendors that have helped us to get to the state we are right now. So I'm incredibly thankful for the supply chain that we've built up here in Canada and internationally that's allowed us to uh, accomplish our goals. So um, moving on to my next question, um, and this one's an interesting one because it really hasn't been talked about. Uh, I've only written one thing about it. Uh, in August of 2020, you filed a, another request with the FCC in the U.S. for a constellation of 360 broadband satellites for service above 55 degrees north. Uh, what's, the, what's the plan for this constellation and what made you decide to put this application forward? Yeah, absolutely. So everything that we do is with the end in mind. I think this is probably going to be the underlying theme of our discussion here today. How is it that we can put up our internet service in space and recognizing what it is that we need to accomplish that goal is what leads to our frequency filings, to our technology developments, and some of the statements that we made. So that exact one is not something that, you know, I can dive in, into a ton of details about just yet, but it's always with the end in mind of delivering our internet in space service. Um, all right. I didn't think I'd get too much out of you on that, uh, but maybe I, 
how different is it than from your existing uh, service? And, and are the satellites going to be different, bigger, more communication like capability? I said, everything we do is with the end in mind of how we can bring internet access outside of Earth. Um, and that drives a lot of the work that we do day in and day out. All right. Good enough uh, for now. You uh, recently launched your latest project or product, uh, Ether. What is it and, and who are you targeting with this audience or with this product? So Ether is the incredibly uh, exciting product that we've been working towards over the past few years. Ether represents our Fourier directly into providing our internet in space service. So what that means for our users is they'll be able to bolt on a device that's roughly the size of your cell phone to any of their satellites. And wherever they are, they're gonna get real-time communications to their spacecraft. It'll be an always-on internet link that you can use for tracking, communicating, commanding your satellites, getting data off of it. Where today the norm for most of our users is they have to wait hours to get their data back to download it to a ground station whenever that ground station is in view. So Ether will be launching pretty soon. We actually have our first two test flight satellites going up in January of next year. And then we'll be continuing to make announcements of our flight plans and the coming years thereafter. Um, but we're, we're pretty excited to welcome quite a few different customers already to Ether, including the European Space Agency, which has just signed on to support us and take advantage of the service that we're launching there. Now, uh, if you'd mind getting into a little bit of the technical detail on this. So it's a piece of hardware attached to their satellite. Um, it then connects, uh, is it connecting uh, directly to the ground or is it connecting to the, uh, to the network of satellites uh, within uh, you know, the mesh within that orbit? Uh, it'll have both modes of operations, the ability to connect directly to the ground or to the mesh network in orbit to allow you to communicate in real time with your satellite. To move the data, right. Okay, I get it. Um, we'll get to launches in a second, but uh, I, this, this next question really caught my interest because it's been a big issue. Um, as I was looking through your press releases and whatnot uh, on your website, I came across uh, one about, I think you pronounce it Kosia which is an open source software package that uh, you're targeting at reducing interference between satellite networks. Now, uh, interference between networks in low earth orbit is a big issue. I've actually lost track of the number of uh, satellites that are uh, uh, being, uh, uh, you know, uh, that are planned, I should say, uh, to, to launch in, in low Earth orbit. But based on the filings last, new filings last week with the FCC, I'm, I'm sure we're up to over 100,000 satellites now uh, in, um, that will, if they all get launched, would be in low Earth orbit. So this is an issue. So um, what's the response been since you've released the software? And, 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 and uh, yeah, let's just start with that with respect to this. Yeah, so Mark, even before we release the software, you know, if you're going out and you're working in the regulatory domain and you want to identify how different systems might interfere with yours, you want to understand the RF parameters, the availability of software tools to allow you to accomplish that goal is exactly one. 
It's one tool that's published and used at the United Nations and ITU level that allows you to do that work. And there's some certain challenges that are all involved with using that particular software um, and the resources that are available to provide updates to that software create some of the challenges. So that ultimately led to why we developed this internal tool or resource called Kosia. But the more and more we talk to peers and, and friends in the industry, the more we recognize that this is a widespread problem. Anybody who's working in the regulatory domain has a need for uh, interference assessment tools and there's generally a lack of that knowledge. And so we felt that it would be an incredibly important part of our work and a responsibility of ours to allow access to this knowledge in this domain for anybody who wants to do work in the regulatory domain to gain access to the same tools we've developed in-house and open sourced it. So anybody can do the, the relevant interference analysis that they're after. Uh, and the reception has been great. Even before we released the software, we had quite a few of our partners in industry uh, who were testing it, validating that the outputs of the software were in fact what they were expecting to see. Um, and these are, you know, major primes and major satellite operators all around the world who had been testing that software. And upon release, we had so many people that were downloading it, using the software, taking advantage of this you know, newfound resource that they hadn't had access to before. Uh, I think it really does empower the community to be more successful. It empowers the community now to make informed decisions, to enter into coordination discussions with different parties, and to overall build for a better satellite world. Um, it's on GitHub, if I remember correctly. Um, so they just have to search for the name Kosia to, to find it. Um, are you updating it? Is the community updating it? How's that working? Yeah, so as with any open source project, people can feel free for them to, to come online, provide an update and check in that update so long as it's relevant and gets approved through the process. And we are constantly creating improvements and uh, that are internally driven. It's not as though our needs have reduced with time in terms of um, what type of interference work we need to do. And as we continue to make updates into the software, we'll make announcements into the relevant user base and make sure everybody's all up to speed. But we think it is, a, in fact, part of our duty as being good space citizens to make the, or keep the software relevant for the user group. Yeah, I can see that. Um, okay, so this year you've launched uh, 10 satellites. Uh, if I, my math is correct, the last being in March. Um, have you learned anything from a design perspective um, from these Gen 1 satellites that has led you to create a new, an update, I should say, to the satellites that you're manufacturing now for future launches? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think that is one of the great benefits of having a rapid iteration cycle and the ability for you to produce everything inside the, the four walls uh, at Kepler. So, you know, we've learned a lot about um, different techniques and processes for manufacturing. How do we do things at scale that we would do differently with time? We've learned quite a, quite a tremendous amount um, that's informed the design for operations. I think that's a largely overlooked field. So, you know, we talk a lot about design for manufacturing uh, in, in design for tolerancing and engineering analysis, but we don't talk a lot about design for operations. Um, and I think that's been one of the biggest learnings and things we've instilled in the early design processes. How do we make it an easier to use uh, and simpler operating platform uh, 
so that we can maintain a consistent size of operating team and build incredible software to support uh, the work that we do every day. So um, I think we've, we've learned a lot about manufacturing operations. That's all informed successive iterations. Now everything goes that flies today. We publicly announced it under the moniker of generation one, but um, there's actually generation 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, and 1.4. That's all been built and updated in, in that process. Um, and then soon to come, and as we kind of crystallize, this will be our generation two uh, announcements. So uh, if you were to put a, a, a number that you, you could say publicly, what generation will be the next satellite that gets launched? Is it 1.5 or? Uh, let's call it Gen 1.3. Okay, fair enough. Um, all right, so you've got 15 satellites on orbit now. Um, how many satellites are ready to go to launch? Um, and if you can, um, what can you, and I know you guys don't generally say too much on this, uh, in, although you just mentioned that you had two ready to launch in January, what, what other um, uh, upcoming launch uh, launches do you have? Yeah, so there are four, four actually, not two, that are ready to launch in January. And those are coming up on the next transporter mission. We certainly keep a regular inventory of parts, goods, and things that are all built up inside of our offices. And as we make up and coming or successive launch announcements, uh, they'll come all out all at the same time to talk about, you know, what's the purpose of what we're launching? How does it benefit our network? Uh, and those should be uh, in short order coming out in the next quarter or so. All right. So you said, uh, so the Transporter 3, for people who don't know, is the SpaceX uh, rideshare mission. Uh, you said four satellites on, on that one. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And originally you were going to go with, Momentus was providing you that, um, uh, their service for that, uh, for that mission, if I remember, or was it, was it Transporter 3? Yeah, I think so. Um, are you, were they able to get their, I don't think they were able to get their uh, launch uh, approval for this mission. So who are you using? So uh, we usually deal directly with some of the, the various launch providers. So we've got engagements directly with SpaceX, engagements with all sorts of brokers all around the world. Um, and those are the types of relationships we take advantage of uh, when we need to launch. So there's quite a bit of flexibility as to where and how we ultimately launch. Uh, and certainly we use a wide range of both brokers and direct engagements with uh, launch vehicles to make sure that we have the right launch schedule that we're after. All right. Yeah. And I did do some research on this the other day and I noticed that there was no mention of any of, of some of the brokerages mentioning who they were uh, providing service for. So I can understand why you haven't uh, uh, named them at this point. All right. So uh, I got just a couple more questions. Um, this one is uh, just because of what's happened in the last couple of days. I noticed that, um, well, first of all, uh, for those who don't know, uh, the Canadian Space Agency, Canada, has a program called the Lunar Explorer Exploration Accelerator Program. And in that program, one of the things they're, they're going to be doing is sending a micro rover to the moon within the next five years. This week, they announced the uh, two uh, prime contractors, if you will, 
um, or two companies that want to be the prime contractor um, for phase A contracts. And, and one of them is with MDA and one of them is with uh, Canadensis. So they both have the opportunity to uh, um, submit over the course of the next eight months proposals for their uh, rovers. Uh, the CSA, the Canadian Space Agency, is going to down select to one uh, and then go forward with that. You are on the NDA team. Um, what's your role? So the ultimate mission for Kepler is to bring internet access outside of Earth. And we saw great alignment and an opportunity to support the communications activities with the lunar rover and help to expand the reach of our network beyond just low Earth orbit as initially envisioned into the lunar environment. So we'll be supplying uh, communications equipment, support, advice, and helping to inform the whole of the design process around how is it that we should be communicating outside of Earth. Okay, um, which then brings up the next question, um, premature as it may be, you guys are working hard to get your satellites uh, launched, are built, launched, and get your network built out. So obviously that's gonna allow you to bring on more customers, more revenue stream. Do you think long-term, I mean, obviously, you do think long-term in terms of respect to what's going on with this contract, the, the lunar one, but what about, um, could we someday maybe speculate about a Kepler uh, small constellation of satellites around the moon for communication? Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, to really, it, it, it takes a few times of repetition for us to really sink in the magnitude of the vision that we have here at Kepler. And it's not always immediately obvious, even to us as, as we live it and breathe it every single day. Our goal and our mission is to bring internet access outside of Earth. That expands well beyond just saying we're going to provide communications in low Earth orbit or to the lunar service. But when you are reaching orbit and ex exiting the Earth's atmosphere, your internet service provider should be Kepler for whatever your mission needs are, whatever your ambitions are, whether that's human spaceflight, whether that's uh, launch or lunar landers or Mars rovers, Kepler is the de facto service provider for communications as soon as you exit Earth. So, you know, I, I welcome us to speculate away on the, all the wonderful ways we'll be accomplishing that mission and the work that our team is doing every single day to make that a reality. All right, well, we could go on from there and talk about, let's say, Mission to Europa or Titan, uh, the rest of it. But then again, we'd be getting away from the core, which is at this time, uh, you need to uh, capture market share in, in low Earth orbit to service what's going on uh, from low Earth orbit. All right, do you have any uh, final thoughts? Anything that I've missed that I should be covering? No, I think you've done a great job here, Mark. And, you know, for all... Uh, aspiring space in, space enthusiasts and space entrepreneurs, I'd certainly welcome their opportunity to kind of reach out, get in touch. Um, we are building a community and an ecosystem here in, in Canada and in Toronto, and we, we certainly want to make uh, the Canadian space industry proud. So if there's ever any way people can reach out to us to be helpful, we're always a resource. And you're hiring? We're hiring aggressively. So our goal is to double our team size. Um, over the next little period, and we've done so successfully over the past 
oh boy, three years and counting. So every year we double in size. So next year we're, we're probably going to be in and around about 180 people. So you're hiring and uh, with your, some of these new hires, are, um, can they work remotely? Yes. So we have a remote first culture, allowing people the flexibility uh, and the, the tools and resources for them to be very successful if they work remote. So they can be in Newfoundland, they can be in Yukon, BC, wherever. If they're interested, they've got the skill sets, you're hiring. Yes. And our furthest hire right now, I think, is in New Zealand at this time. Ah, okay. There you go. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you, Mina, for your time. I, I appreciate it. Uh, as you build out uh, your business, uh, we will be following along and hopefully we'll get the opportunity to, uh, to talk to you again. Thank you so much, Mark. Take care. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. As a reminder, Space Q has two other podcasts in our network. Terranauts, hosted by industry veteran Ian Christie, which is now in season three, and the just launched Earth and Space podcast, focused on how we use space to benefit us in our everyday lives, including agriculture, weather, the effects of climate change, etc. Your feedback is very much appreciated. Please use our Twitter channel at The Economy Space to contact us or send an email to podcast at spaceq.ca. If you use Apple Podcasts, it would really help us if you write a review on whichever podcast you listen to.